Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. The podcast episode you are about to hear was released to premium subscribers two days ago. And it was done so without any of these annoying announcements or ads. There are a number of other benefits to being a premium subscriber, starting with the Daily Contrarian podcast and briefing that goes out every market day morning by 7 a.m. This is a briefing on the events of the day ahead, the economic data releases, earnings, and other items that can and will move markets. And it's voiced by me, your host, no guests, just a couple of minutes of that, five minutes or so, along with an email that contains all of the relevant information. To become a premium subscriber, you can visit the website mentioned at the top, contrarian.supercast.com, or visit our substack, contrarianpod.substack.com, and sign up. Prices are not quite nine bucks a month anymore. They are if you sign up for a year, but otherwise the monthly price is closer to 11 bucks or so, because as we all know, inflation is not transitory. And we'll probably be hearing that joke for some time. Anyway, that's all for now. Enjoy the podcast. Here you go. I am here with Chris Hutchins. He is the head of new product strategy at Wealthfront, as well as the host of his own podcast called All the Hacks. Now, Chris, this is a little bit of an unusual episode here because your view is basically that people shouldn't invest. I, I don't think people shouldn't invest. I just don't think people should try to be investors, you know, per right. se, and like, you know, take it upon themselves to try to beat the market, to try to figure it all out and figure the game out. I think, you know, there's a strategy that I take on my own personal investments, which is like, I want to play the market and I want to do it in the most optimal, efficient way. And then I like, you know, I want to wet the appetite of the excitement of investing and set aside a part of my portfolio to do that. Yeah. And that's in line with what I'm excited about more than it is about, you know, some perfectly tweaked asset allocation. Okay, now this is interesting because you are a serial entrepreneur and you you are, um, we talked about this a bit, an LP actually. And so you, of all people, one would think is in a position to optimize your portfolio and make some investments in individual stocks and uh, some venture investments, some angel investments, but you don't, and, and certainly real estate. Uh, we keep hearing that real estate is the big way to build wealth in this in this country, but you don't quite agree with that any of that either, do you? Yeah. I mean, real estate's this funny thing, right? Like 
you know, I've been deep in this financial independence, retire early movement. I know a lot of people there and everyone's just like, I just want to save up just enough to buy another property and just enough to buy another property. And I'm like, yeah, I bought REITs in my index. Like I have REITs in my Wealthfront account. Like that's great, but I don't really want to go and be a landlord. Like right. buying rent real estate is more than just owning real estate. It's, you know, figuring out what to do with that real estate and you can invest in a fund. And then it's just a question of, well, do you want to invest in a secret, you know, private REIT or a public REIT and which one's more work and finding it and vetting it. So for me, it's like, yeah, I invest in a lot of real estate in an index fund, but buying a property and becoming a landlord and dealing with the, you know, problems of, tenants is a mess that I don't want to deal with. We've, we've rented rooms out in the past in our house and it's just a mess. And then, yeah, you can hire this property manager, but now you just right. stack up all that. You stack up vacancy, you stack up this. And like, is it actually going to outperform relative to the overhead you have? I have very little overhead. Like my wealth run account where I put all my index, like I have very little overhead of managing that, right? I chose a portfolio, have my asset allocation there and I let it do its thing. Yeah. And again, you are what is considered a, or what will be considered a sophisticated investor. So, you know, you've had multiple exits here with these companies that you've started. And so, but, but you're not, you don't really go that route of, of individual investing. No, I mean, to go further, like I, I ran a financial planning firm. We had right. know, 15 CFPs on staff. We were helping clients with, you know, mil, I think about a million plus in income or in net worth. But I, I think there's just so much more room for people in that demographic to optimize so many other financial things that in the long run will help them build wealth faster. Right. Um, you know, like, for example, when I got to my most recent job, I work at Wealthfront, build product. I was like, instead of trying to optimize the portfolio and spending all the time there, what if we could help people optimize how quickly they could put their money to work? So like auto sweep their money into their account, set up faster recurring deposits, sweep excess cash. Like those kinds of things are great. Trying to help uh, people figure out whether they could be earning more uh, in their job. So you mentioned I have a podcast. You know, we had an episode where we talked about how to negotiate and how you could negotiate for a raise. We talked about how to do side hustles and how to earn extra income. If you can add 10% to your net worth every year by saving money or by earning an investment return, obviously the investment return would be a much lower lift. But a lot of times that's not the same. Your portfolio might not be earning what you could earn starting up a side hustle, figuring out a way to monetize your free time better. And so I think there are just a lot of ways that you could increase your bottom line and grow your net worth. And the one that I think has the lowest likelihood of success is trying to tweak that, you know, portfolio to outperform the market because the data just shows it doesn't, it doesn't usually work for most people. Yeah. And that is kind of the unfortunate reality that we're looking at here. And this is why I thought this would be good to, to bring this up here today, because now I realize I'm probably losing a lot of listeners. And um, in fact, probably many people have already turned this off because this is not why people listen to this podcast. But it bears saying, nonetheless, it's worth saying that this is, it is extremely difficult. And I've studied this. I've looked at just the active management, especially with public money, with public securities, and just how difficult it is, especially over time, to beat the market. And so, you know, just going the Bogle route and dropping it all into a low cost index fund, maybe it is the, the way to go. And then worrying about other other areas of one's life. I mean, it does it does bear pointing out as much well, as I hate to do it. 
let's give people some system for the people that didn't drop off. I think we can kind of, there's some places we can go that I think won't, won't leave you feeling like, uh, you know, we, we, we provided no value to, to that perspective. Cause honestly, your podcast, uh, you know, there's another podcast called macro voices, animal yeah. spirits. Like there are three or four podcasts that dive into these like technical investing, you know, macroeconomic topics. I love listening to them. So like, as someone who doesn't actively buy oil futures, there's nothing more fascinating to me than learning and listening about it because it makes me a okay. more informed investor. Um, I also okay. think there are ways uh, to do this, you know, active investing or investing in alternatives that are still in line with a broader theme of I can't beat the market. So I did an episode of All the Hacks with Brian Feraldi. And he kind of outlined this stock investing plat, you know, process he runs where he makes a checklist and he has a process for picking a stock mm. and he treats it as a long-term investment. And you could almost argue that he's just trying to build his own version of an index fund, mm. not that he's trying to be this crazy active manager that necessarily outperforms the market. He is trying to build an index fund that would outperform, but you know, he's building a series of long-term bets. So right. like, I was fascinated by that. And I don't think that's a terrible strategy. Mm. Uh, I just personally don't want to spend the time to do what he does. But if someone's listening to this and thinking, you know, I want to invest in stocks, definitely check that out. That, that okay. was like a good story about that. But you don't um, invest in individual stocks yourself. I have some individual oh. stocks. Okay. Some from the fact that, you know, I was a venture capitalist for at Google Ventures for a handful of years. And when companies went public, I got their stocks. And I was like, ah, I just didn't sell them. You know, a lot right, of them right. were in tech in the last year. I maybe regret in the last six months, maybe that yeah, I held well, on to them. Right. Start coming uh, back. But yeah. Yeah. Starting coming back. There are companies that I just believe in and believing in a company's product and their future and wanting to have a piece of that in my portfolio is very different than trying to actively trade and outperform the market with everything I have. So, right. you know, taking five, 10% of my portfolio and putting it aside for making bets that I'm passionate about that I think could outperform is, is my strategy, but it's a very different strategy than thinking I can outperform. It's like, sure. I, I like making these bets. They might all do terribly. They might not, but they feed this desire I think we all have to be passionately involved in what we're investing in. Um, cool. And I can actually take more risk with that money knowing that it's not my whole portfolio, which is fun. I put some money in a winery. Like I would never do that with all my money, but if I set aside a risky thing, a risky pool of money that I could take bets with, um, I could do more fun things with it. And I've enjoyed it. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit Contrarian dot supercast dot tech for more information how does your asset allocation break down and, and i'm not going to ask about individual stocks unless you want to uh, but but as you know whereas you know the the percent you have in index funds and how does that break down versus stocks versus bonds and then the percentage you have as a i guess as a gp or, or whatever and how does that all break down do you can you are you able to, yeah, to yeah. make a big picture yeah, yeah, I was like, can I do, pull this spreadsheet up fast enough? Yeah, so it's like forty-five percent U.S. stocks and okay in indexes, um, yeah, in in indexes, and of that, I would say about maybe maybe like twenty percent of it might be individual stocks, and and eighty okay. percent is indexes, and then okay. but I don't have individual stocks in all the other areas, so it's probably another thirty percent, thirty-five percent in international stocks, five oh. percent in real estate, almost all REITs. Another four ish percent in crypto, 
mostly because it was like 0.5% or 0.1% a long time ago and grew. Um, and then another 5% in commodities, all in index funds, timber, mining, uh, energy, that kind of stuff. 2% alternatives. I maybe it's my long-term horizon. Maybe it's interest rates, uh, where, where they've been in the past, but bonds is like 1%. Okay. Um, and then some cash and then okay. a couple other funds that I think were so diversified, maybe a couple more percentage and in, in funds that are so diversified that I can't really like call them us or not. Interesting. Um, all right. Well, here's a question for you because you're you're were a VC, and you 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 said you were an early investor in crypto. You said in some other things. What are some areas of technology that you're excited about now? Maybe not even necessarily from an investing perspective, but just from a pure technology perspective. From a I guess from a, a potential perspective, like what really has a potential to to change the way we live and the way we do things. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not very contrarian to say that I think everything going on on the blockchain is interesting. Okay. I, I think that's probably, I, I want to make a strong distinction between that and, you know, buying Bitcoin, right? Like, right. I think there are a lot of use cases um, when it comes to ownership and traceability and residuals. I'll take, you know, I, I'm definitely not going to go out and say everyone should go buy NFTs, but this idea that an artist can create a piece of art, and I'm sure there's debate on whether people think something digital that you can copy, you know, is art, but, and, and say, when this thing trades in the future, I automatically get, you know, X percent of every sale. You know, you look at the most valuable pieces of art in the world, and those original artists are not participating in that at all. So right. the way, the fact that you can create these entities and structures, um, you know, on top of technology, mostly on the blockchain, that create these new ways to run businesses, DAOs creating new ways that you can organize a business and have people collectively buy things and vote on things um, in a way that used to be like paperwork. You know, I just got this email or I saw a tweet from Elon Musk the other day. It's like, hey, if you haven't voted, uh, you know, on all the Tesla shareholder meetings, here's how you do it. And it's like, okay, I got to go log into interactive brokers and find this note and then figure out it's like a mess. The fact that technology isn't more a part of that is crazy. And so mm -hmm. the idea that as you're investing in companies, as you're doing things, that that could actually kind of all tie to one single source of truth, that's interesting to me. Okay. And I think um, I think there's a lot. I, I, I can't predict what that will mean for us. Um, I think it's too early, but I just see the future there being really, really interesting. Okay. And are there any, have you seen any proposals, any, any decks, I guess, from blockchain companies? Because you mentioned in your asset allocation, that doesn't sound like there's anything in blockchain. Or yeah. That... I mean, I, I consider, you know, owning some Ethereum to be like sure, okay. a bet on that blockchain. And I think okay. like it's a promising blockchain. Do, do I have any individual investments in crypto companies? No, I don't. Uh -huh. uh, I think, you know, a long time ago, uh, I can't remember. There were all these companies getting acquired in the ad space. It was like double click and oh, yeah. you know, all that stuff. And I remember I picked one and I was like, gosh, they're all getting acquired. I don't know enough about this. I'm going to invest in this one because like they're all getting picked up. Well, I just picked the one that didn't get picked up. <laughs> and so like I, I want to, when, when I'm not certain of a specific value, I've, I'm kind of playing broad. So for me, I think that if blockchain takes off right now, Ethereum's like a front runner for what that means. So for me, I'm like, let's hold a little bit. 
do I want to fill my portfolio with it? No, definitely not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so like that is that is my passive way of kind of betting that the blockchain will be interesting. I'm sure there are people listening that could say there are other tokens that might you know be a better bet or other DAOs that I could participate in that are owning pieces of different NFTs. Like yes, but for me, I it's I'm not I don't want to go that far down that rabbit hole. Okay. You don't think it's a cyclical thing with these NFTs and, and the DAOs and, and Bitcoin and thing like that, things like that? I think, you know, there was a dot-com hype cycle, right? Everything was yeah. crashing. Like, was that the end of the internet and web companies? Right. No, right. but were there a lot of things that were overvalued that took a long time to come back? Yeah. So right. do I think right now with what's going on in crypto, there's going to be a, a pause on a lot of exciting new projects getting tons of funding? Yeah. But do yeah. I think the ones that sustain and the ones that hold through are doing something really interesting? Yeah. Like a, a friend of mine started this, this company called Proof Collective or Proof, and they created an NFT that is a membership and they do all these partnerships with other artists and they've launched their own products. Like it's super interesting. It's been a chance for me to learn. Do I think that the, a Proof Collective pass, which, you know, is like, you know, now risen to almost six figures. Do I think that it's the best long-term investment in the world. No, I can't say that. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there are companies doing really interesting things that will be around uh, for a while. And I don't think it's it's going to disappear. I just think in some ways it's good because a lot of the companies that maybe didn't need to be around or weren't doing things in the right way, like kind of, kind of get washed aside and the ones that stick around, um, you know, that's awesome. And I think there's always really great opportunity for entrepreneurs in mm -hmm. a market crash in to, to start companies. Mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Any particular I, needs you think other than the blockchain that? I think we go through these waves uh, where there's all these, you know, an app for everything or a, a website for everything to now I have too many things. And so I think something, this is personal. I don't have any beliefs or, or company to bet on right now, but I think right now people are actually becoming a little overwhelmed with all of the options you have for ways to do mm. things, platforms to communicate on where I'm like, gosh, I would love something that kind of brings it all back together. So I think mm. companies that start to bring together a lot of information um, are going to be interesting. And I think there's enough of a pushback that it's probably not going to be like Facebook and Google right now. Right. Um, that's interesting. Like I could see something like if, if a company like Evernote were getting started again and it could kind of pull everything together in, in a way that it's your notes, your email, it like makes life a little easier to operate. You can do things with one app. Like I would love that product personally, instead mm. of having one place to go communicate with people, one place to send an email, one place to post social updates. Is there some way to bring it all together? I don't know what that looks like, mm. um, but I, I do think that we're getting a little bit of fatigue with all these social networks, all these places to message. Right now, I think I have a chat going on with a different set of people on WhatsApp, Signal, mm. Telegram, iMessage, SMS, email, Twitter DMs, Instagram DMs. It's like, I have you 10 different mention ways. Discord, yeah. Uh, I've got Discord going, I got Slack <laughs> going. Like there's at least a dozen ways that I'm communicating with people and it's overwhelming. I would love to see that somehow come together. And I don't know who does it or you know how it happens, but it would make me very happy. You know who should do it is Apple because they are the ones like, you know, take MP3 technology, right? It existed before the iPod, but they all sucked, all these devices. If you're old enough to remember, they were just terrible. And Apple came along with the iPod and all of a sudden here is something that actually worked that people could actually use. And you know, you synced it with iTunes and stuff. Um, so that's, you know, yeah. And I think Apple's 
realized enough bets that like, they're just not going to try to win in social. So like, I think they're not going to go, like if Facebook wanted to do this, people would be like, ah, you you want too much of my information for your social and your ads, all this stuff. I think Apple might have a better shot, but um what about all these people I communicate that aren't on an iPhone? You know, but yeah, yeah. From a con- and also, yeah, just, you know, as a, as a news guy, from a content perspective, like getting like, you know, the old Google news uh, groups or whatever, not the news groups, but the, what do they call it? Was, I think it might have even been Google news. You've got all these, or no, the Google RSS reader, you had all these, yeah. you know, way, and just some way of doing that because yeah, it's all kind of disjointed now. I mean, I guess Twitter does maybe a decent job of, of getting it together, but anyway, that's all. Yeah. That's all pretty interesting. Yeah. So I don't know. That's kind of some stuff I'm excited about. I'm, I'm excited about a lot of health related things. I don't consider okay. myself an expert here, but I just see a lot of smart people in Silicon Valley starting companies to do early detection of certain diseases and, um, you know, being able to test treatments uh, at, on different, you know, different cancers, t- testing thousands of different treatments in, you know, a very short period of time to find very specific therapeutics for a person, like as someone who's had multiple family members with different types of cancers and diseases, the idea that you could basically have a, I don't know, like a therapeutic cocktail that's specifically designed for your microbiome, DNA, uh, blood type, et cetera, et cetera. That is really interesting. And I would love to see more people working on that because I don't know, it's a, it's a, you know, we're all getting older. Like yeah. that, that is one known truth that I think we're all focused on. So yeah, this space for rent. If you own a small corporation, have a service or even a podcast of your own that you wish to advertise, you can use the Contrarian Investor Podcast for this purpose. I will happily read an ad and shout out a link to your service at this stage of this podcast. So if you are interested, get in touch, email contrarianpod at gmail.com and let me know what you would propose. Obviously, there are limits to the type of things that can be advertised, but rates are low. And there's other ways that this can be marketed as well, using our Twitter account and, of course, the show notes. This distribution is pretty deep. We'll be happy to share any details. So get in touch, contrarianpod at gmail.com. You don't think that the whole VC model is as an investor is, is very interesting or, or potentially? So I think it's just a very... It has a risk profile that I think makes sense. I think a lot of these things like investing in venture capital, for example, like that's something that I think just investing, there's there's not a good way to invest a thousand dollars in venture capital, right? Like most right. of the most of these investment opportunities that are very sought after by ultra high net worths are they don't want to have seven thousand customers, you know, signing up every day to participate it's much easier to deal with 10 endowments and, you know, a handful of ultra high net worth people than it is to deal with a million consumers. So I am somewhat skeptical of, you know, so I don't meet the minimums for most of these things. I'm not, you know, I'm not the Stanford endowment. uh, So I don't have that kind of budget. So I think to the extent you find a way, you know, through whatever network or friends or profession to get access to things without all the extra fees that you get from platforms that distribute it, 
you know, that's interesting. So whenever I evaluate these things, it's like, you know, there's websites that make fractional real estate ownership. I'm like, how many layers of fees and what is the fraction? What are the fees they're charging doing? If the fees they're charging are just to distribute it to the person, then it's, you know, not as interesting. But Mm -hmm. if the fees are to do things like, you know, if it's art or wine to store it, to market it, like things that, you know, as an individual, you might not be able to do, they're different. So I like whenever I'm looking at these platforms to kind of dig in and say, what are the fees going towards? Um, because sometimes if it's just an access fee, it's going to eat into your returns. Yeah. Right. So, you know, the, you've spent time in the hedge fund world. It's like the fees are the, are often the problem with the returns. It's not actually the returns. It's the fact that the yeah. fee adjusted return can't beat the market. But if the fees are going to do something that you couldn't otherwise do, that technology paired with it allows, now I'm kind of interested. The fees are going to go and and build a marketplace that allows for uh, a more liquid secondary market for art or wine or mm. something like that. That's that's becoming interesting. Um, Picasso mm. is a company I'm super fascinated by because we were looking to buy a home. Uh, and we're not looking to buy it. Sorry, let me... We were looking for some way to go visit my parents who live in a part of the country where there's just not a lot of Airbnbs because they've been, you know, kind of restricted. And we found a home on this site, Picasso, which you builds a platform for fractional ownership of vacation homes. So we bought an eighth of a home uh, that we have. Now they have a fee that marks up that home. And so I'm like, gosh, is, is that fee worth it? But what the fee does is it goes to furnish the home uh, in a way that's kind of consistent with what a modern person might want in their home. Uh, They have a platform with technology that makes the booking process feasible. Like if you just had eight friends buy a house, you'd be arguing over who gets Christmas, who gets this. So if you look at what they've done with all the fees, they've actually turned it into a functional way to own an eighth of a house and be happy. And so I'm like, I'm fine paying that fee. And Mm. I actually consider it an investment because unlike a timeshare or something like you can sell your share to someone else. Um, so it's a little bit of an investment that I can use. So I don't know, that's interesting to me. And I'm willing to pay a fee for something that's like half investment, half you know use, mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. that fee goes towards providing some unique benefit. Interesting. Okay, cool. All right, What? so it's called Picasso and they-, they Yeah, so Picasso. Uh-huh. You, they, I mean, they buy, the, yeah. they source houses and then okay. they build an LLC. They have a technology platform to coordinate all of the issues that, you know, come up with booking and reserving and canceling and maintenance issues and that kind of stuff. And then they layer all that on top of it. They furnish it. They, and then they find eight people to buy it. And huh. then they have a marketplace that they've built by now growing this company big enough. They now have a marketplace that if you don't want it anymore, you can go sell it to that marketplace. So in fact, when we did ours, we bought it from someone who had bought his a year ago and he made, yeah, it's like a 20% return in a year because the real estate market was what it was. So I don't know. Stuff like that hmm. is super interesting to me. That company is big enough now that I, I can't go invest in it. But it, you know, as soon as I saw it, I was like, ah, I would love to invest it. I even reached out to them for my podcast. I was like, can we work together? I love your product. Like I'm an owner. Uh-huh. Um, and so, did they get back to you? Yeah, well, I'm trying to see if we can work something out. Cool. All right, Chris Hutchins, uh, this is a really interesting conversation. I want to take a short break and give our sponsors a chance to be heard and then come back and ask you some more questions. So hang out, don't go anywhere. If you are a premium subscriber, don't touch the dial. You will not get the break. We'll be right back. In fact, we already are. And to become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. 
We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. .com will do the trick. And we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details, contrarianpod.substack.com. So if you already have a Substack account and use it or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Whole bunch of benefits, including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the daily contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out, contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. Welcome back, everybody. Chris Hutchins here, host of All the Hacks and head of new product strategy at Wealthfront. Chris, this is the segment of the show where we uh, ask our guest to talk more about himself and give us a, a bit of a take us back and how he came to investing in the first place or not investing in your case. Um, and yeah, just how, how the whole thing started. And I mentioned you're, you've uh, started a couple companies, but take us back and how you got interested in all this and uh, yeah, how you ended up at this current station in life. Yeah, I mean, I'll do the quick version. So when I was graduating college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had talked to a few friends and they were like, well, the best job is investment banking and management consulting. And I was like, well, I guess I got to do that. So I went back to school and I w walked into the dean's office. I was like, you need to help me get a job uh, in investment bank or management consulting firm. And so I went down that path for a few months and ended up doing that uh, as my job. And uh, I realized that that's the worst way to decide what you want to do is mm. to let someone else tell you. So mm. I tried management consulting and investment banking, didn't like either, but I went to this event called Startup Weekend where a bunch of people, software engineers, product people, marketing people, ever were just hanging out trying to see what it would be like to start a company over the weekend, like an internet company. And I was living in New York at the time and I'd driven to Boston and I was like, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing in the world. Like we launched a product in a weekend. It was a silly product. It, you know, it was like an app for Windows that would remind you to like stretch throughout the day. But it was a product that worked and we like sent it to family members. And I was like, I want to do this. And everyone was like, oh, well, there's a whole city where everyone works on companies like this. It's in San Francisco. And I was like, okay. I have to go there. So I moved out to San Francisco with a mission of like, I want to work at a startup and I want to build technology companies and consumer products. And 
Um, worked at a handful of companies, started one with some friends. We sold that to Google. Um, you know, was fortunate at Google to get a chance to go work at Google Ventures and be a venture capitalist for three, four years and go invest in early stage companies, probably hundred companies over that time. Wow. And then, uh, you know, I've always been personally passionate about optimizing my financial life and yeah. really my entire life. And so I was trying to think of what I wanted to do next. And every conversation I was having with people was all about what to do with money. They're like, I don't know what to do with my money. It's stressing me out. You know, for anyone that doesn't know, it's the number one cause of stress and number one cause of divorce in America. And so I thought, what can I do? And my first hypothesis was, let's try to make financial planning more accessible and affordable because it's this process where you take all the inputs of someone's life, their budget, their spending, their investments, and you try to help them come up with a plan. So I started this company called Grove and we tried to make that process more efficient with software. And the good side was that uh, our clients were really happy. The downside was that there weren't that many of them. And mm -hmm. the reason there weren't that many of them is because the process of financial planning is really, really burdensome. And mm -hmm. most people don't want to make it a priority. Do I wish they did? Yes. Will they? No. And so we'd raised about $10 million and about halfway through spending it, I realized that the, the best way to achieve our goals was not going to be to continue down uh, the path of offering a human kind of hybrid software product. Uh, and I met the founder of Wealthfront and we talked about what his vision was for self-driving money and what I'd learned. And I was like, this seems like the best place that we can end up. And so I joined and I started working on bringing that self-driving money vision to life and building different types of software that could automate and optimize people's financial lives and help them build wealth through investing. And so I've been there for three years uh, and I've loved it and you know I've enjoyed building that product. And last year I started a podcast called All the Hacks, which basically explores my passion for optimizing not just my finances, but my entire life. Mm -hmm. And so... I'd say a third of the show dives into what I think is kind of the biggest opportunity to save money in your life uh, for many people, which is cutting back on travel and leisure mm -hmm. expenses. Uh, so we have a, a lot of content on optimizing your tra travel experiences, using credit card points to travel for free, getting deals, staying at hotels, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Quick fun hack. If you ever book a hotel and you book directly with the hotel and you email the hotel that you're coming and tell them you're excited, I've seen like 50 plus percent success rate in getting hooked up by the hotel. As long as you book direct, no Expedia orbits kind of thing. Um, about a third of the episodes are about money. Like I'm passionate about saving money, investing, um, learning about all the different aspects of financial optimization. Where do you put your money? How do you save more efficiently? All that. And then the rest is all about life. We've had mm -hmm. the director of the American Negotiation Institute. We talked about negotiating. We've talked about career hacks, relationships, family stuff, like all those topics, side hustles. Uh, and so each week I just bring on an expert or, or I run an episode myself and we dive into all the deals, all the optimizations to help you upgrade your life, your money, your travel, and do it while spending less and saving more. And uh, with the ultimate goal of taking all those extra savings. And, and while I don't want to spend my whole life figuring out how to invest, I do want to invest that money and grow my wealth. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, that that is what I, I do. You can check it out at allthehacks.com or you're listening to podcasts now, you can search all the hacks and um, reach out to me. Let me know what you think. What's the number one mistake or maybe the top three or whatever that people make when it comes to investing that you've seen? I mean, I think I'll break down. These seem so fundamental, but one mistake is not doing it, right? You know, I said yeah. earlier, 
you know, if you're making a lot of money and you're saving a lot and you don't have a lot of investments, picking the investments might not be the most important thing, right? Like tweaking that like little bit of return relative to tweaking the savings, but you should still invest the money, right? Like I think leaving your money in a checking account that earns 0.1% is probably not the most optimal thing to do with your money. So finding something to do with your money so that it grows is is a great option, right? Like I think right now, Wealthfront's doing 2% on our cash account. So even if you're not ready to invest in the market and you want to earn 2%, you know, I think that is a great option. Uh, if you are investing, finding something, right? Not overthinking it at the start. I think one mistake is trying to find the most optimal thing. So I like to say, okay, go do the quick thing and then decide if it's worth your time to go from what's quick to what's optimal. And a lot of times people don't. So if it's like, you know, if a target date fund is the easy approach, put your money in a target date fund and then decide whether you want to spend the time to go tweak that and do more mm. as opposed to starting with the baseline of nothing and everything's in cash and I have to get the most optimal. It's like, maybe you could 80, 20 yourself there unintentionally. Mm -hmm. um, so I think another one is it's not selling, right? Like people whose net worth is tied up into a stock at a company they own. And, and my quick trick there is just pretend you've sold it and ask yourself if you'd rebuy it. Mm -hmm. So if you work at a tech company like Google and you've got a million dollars in Google stock and you've got 20 grand in your bank account, ask yourself whether if by mistake, your brokerage firm sold your Google stock and said, hey, now you've got a million dollars in cash. Do you want us to go buy, you know, like, or a million and 20,000, right? Like, cause you just sold it. Do you want us to go buy a million dollars worth of Google stock with like a 99.9% .9 of your net worth or not. And I think it's a little easier to process that you wouldn't want to be holding your entire net worth in one concentrated position right. uh, than it is to say, do I want to sell it? Because when you think about selling it, you're like, is this the right price? Is now the right day? But if you flip it and say, pretend you sold it and they're asking if you want to buy it, it's a little easier. So right. I don't know. Those are a few kind of mm. common lessons I think uh, help uh, hurt. And then I think the other thing is just not automating everything, right? Like make it easy. Like uh -huh. it, the time in the market, right? Is better than time yeah. in the market. So just make it easy. Sweep your money automatically when your paycheck comes in. Uh, you know, put your excess cash to work. Have a threshold and say, anytime my checking account goes over X, the rest is for investing and just automatically do that. Mm -hmm. I think things like that can have a huge impact far that far outweighs uh, a lot of other things that, you know, we might spend our time on, like, you know, browsing all these stocks, reading earnings reports. Like when you have enough money that those decisions impact you, that is really great. But when you mm -hmm. don't just make sure you get the money in the market, like mm -hmm. just invest it. Yeah. Interesting. Good points. What about keeping money liquid and having an emergency, uh, an account? And and is there a typical size that you, you look to have there? Like how much do you need liquid? And by liquid, I mean, you can get it today or tomorrow. Yeah. So I think that especially right now with rates where they are, right? Like the last thing you want to be doing if you need to repair something in your house or something happens is to be borrowing, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, if you can't get a loan and you have to borrow on your credit card, you're paying 20 something percent, that's even worse. So I think the purpose of an emergency fund is to be in a situation where if you need money, you don't have to borrow it. Um, and at least you don't have to borrow it in an, in an unpredictable way. So some people like to have their, you know, HELOC as a backup, but even that, you know, if you asked me two years ago where I thought rates would be on HELOCs and on portfolio loans, I wouldn't have said where they are today. And, yeah. you know, that interest adds up. So I like to make sure that I have, you know, 
somewhere, depending on your job stability, you know, three, six, if you're a freelancer whose clients could all disappear, maybe it's 12 or maybe it's mm. even two years, like, mm. but three to six months, if you have a steady job, maybe, maybe a year, if you don't is something I like to just keep very accessible. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean I want it earning 0.1% mm. or 0.01% in my checking account, right? Like I want it earning, like I mentioned, Wealthfront's doing 2%. Like I want it earning 2%. I want it earning as much as I can, but I want it in cash so that if I need it for something, uh, I have it. And mm -hmm. that's something could be the medical bills you have. If you have a child, we just had a, another kid, like there are expenses that come with that. Um, you know, they could be a renovation, um, that kind of stuff. We had a sewage pump, which is not a fun thing to have to fix. It doesn't uh, but in, in our house go out and it's like, well, that was not something I was planning on fixing. And it, you know, it's not $20 to fix. And so that's the kind of thing where you don't want to have to borrow. So I like to set that aside. Um, I do think that if you're, careful with borrowing against your investments. Um, it can be a great backup for liquidity. So hmm. I think right now, depending on where you go, there are a lot of options to borrow against your investment portfolio. It's usually pegged to interest rates right now. So it's not as low as it was in the past. But I think that, you know, if you keep that to a point that, you know, even a 50% market drop isn't going to give you a margin call, right. it can be a good option for the short term. Right. I don't think it's a good, I don't think anyone should be doing that indefinitely right. because who knows where rates go. Right. But if you, if you need cash flow for two or three months, right? If you need to pay the IRS and you're not going to have the money for a month, you know, I'd rather borrow from my portfolio knowing what the interest is going to be for the next month or two than sell my positions and be out of the market. Yeah. So I think yeah. ideally you've left the money you need in cash, but if not, um, you know, I think that's a good option. And, or, or I guess I should say it can be a good option, but right. you know, for me, I want to borrow like 20% or less of my portfolio because right. I want zero, you know, there's no way to get to zero risk, but I want as close to zero risk as possible that I'm going to get a margin call uh, if the market crashes, because, you know, that would be the worst case scenario. Right. Cool. All right. Last question, Chris, what are some things that keep you up at night that have you worried, be it a geopolitical flashpoint or a market thing or something completely different? Yeah, I mean, I have a, I have a two month old. So what keeps okay. me up at night is, is her, but uh, <laughs> literally, yeah, you know, literally, but for me, it's interesting. Everyone I know is so worried about, uh, you know, the market and why are we in a recession? Is it going to crash? What's going to happen? And I think because I've taken an approach to my investments of like, I just know that that's going to happen at some point. Mm -hmm. And so I've built a portfolio and I've built an asset allocation that, ex you know, understand that that's coming kind of gives me peace. I'm like, I don't care if there's a, a, a giant, you know, like, look, I would prefer it not to be a market yeah, sure. crash. I would much rather the market grow 50% this year. But if the market crashes, like I'm expecting that to happen. If it happens, you know, I'm planning for it. And in some cases it makes me feel you know, much, much easier to sleep at night. Mm. Um, I think when it comes to more geopolitical things, and this is, you know, we should not get into politics here, but like, right. you know, the kind of political issues that are happening all over the world, we're recording this right now. And, you know, US uh, officials are flying to Taiwan and, and China's upset. Like, I don't love China being upset about things that we're doing. Like, those kind of things keep me up at night. But fortunately, because I, expect them to regularly happen in the world. Like my portfolio doesn't keep me up at night. Right. All right, good. Well, that's a good place to stop here. Chris Hutchins, uh, maybe in closing, just tell us where we can find out more about you um, and the podcast. We mentioned it. We'll put all that in the show notes, of course. 
Yeah. I mean, if you want to come check out the podcast, um, all the hacks.com, we also do a newsletter, um, you know, all the hacks.com slash email, uh, check it out, listen to whatever episodes you want, right? Like it's not the kind of show where if something's not, you have to listen every week, find the thing that is the topic you love. You want to travel for free. You want to learn all the hacks to get the best deals on hotels and flights. Go back, start at the beginning, episode one. You know, I love that we kick the show off with that. And if you want to check out what I'm working on uh, at Wealthfront, go to wealthfront.com, check out what the products we're building. Very cool. Well, thank you, Chris, for coming on the show. Uh, it was really great having you, a great conversation. And thank you all for listening. And we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time.